You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the B&H app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan White. Greetings and welcome to the B&H Photography Podcast. Today's show is episode two of our two-episode shows on trends of uh, best cameras of 2017. And today we're going to be talking about photo trends for 2018. We are welcoming back Yaakov Adler and Levy Tannenbaum, our sales trainers. <laughs> A little bit of music going on there. Uh, last, last week, uh, last episode, we talked about uh, cameras of the year and related subjects. Today we're going to talk about trends because things are changing fast in the world of photography in case you haven't noticed. And on the second half of our show, we're going to return to our serial segment, Dispatch, with Adrian O'Hanison. Adrian will update us on our progress after a deadly attack in Congo, which was detailed in our last segment, and discuss her most recent assignment to a wildlife conservancy near Mount Kenya, where she photographed the very last male northern white rhino in existence. But first, Levy and Yaakov, where would you guys like to begin? Welcome back. Nice to see you after this whole week. Yeah, it's great to see you. Yeah, this is good. You look very similar. Yeah, yeah. Did you get a haircut? Some things don't change. Yeah, (laughs) Don got a haircut. Look at that. Wow. That is a Um, close buzz. One of the things that I think is hard to avoid these days, and it's been hard to avoid for a while and, and even more so, smartphones. They are getting better and better. And I think it's just so funny when a new phone comes out, nobody talks about phone reception. They talk about the cameras. Yep. Um, from iPhone, there was the 7 Plus and now the 8 Plus and the 10, yep. which have amazing cameras. I recently picked up um, an iPhone 8 Plus, and I'm astonished of how much it's improved. My last one was the 5S. Oh, yeah. And it's just well. leap years ahead. Yep. Um, the 120 frame per second video, I'm blown away by what I could put together in in mm-hmm. my phone. Amazing little wonderful videos and the clips that, uh, uh, app they have and a lot of other things. What do you think about this stuff? Well, Levy, you have the you have the ten on order, right? I have the ten on order. I feel like I am. Has a, it broken yet? Well, it, it's on order, so it, <laughs> I, it, it's hard. It's hard for me to break the phone while it's I on order. I understand they're coming. They're arriving with shattered screens. They're just taking away. You don't even have to break it yourself. No, <laughs> pre-shattered. I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. Well, because they cover two shatterings of their Apple Care, so they exactly. Want to, yeah, they yeah. get started okay. early. Yeah. When is it coming? Uh, December, mid-December. I'm hoping. We also have not just the iPhones, of course, but there's the Google Pixel. Yeah. And I want to talk about this for one second because yeah. we, we've mentioned this in the past in the show. So number one, phones are now doing some amazing stuff when it comes to cameras. We we, we, we saw Leica paired up with with a camera company out of China, Huawei, to, to make lenses for Can them. Can you say that again? Huawei? Huawei. Yes. I hope I'm pronouncing that right for anyone who speaks yeah, Chinese. Yeah, I do apologize. H-U- I, 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 yeah, Huawei. H-U-A-W-E-I-I or I. Yeah. Obviously, um, Huawei, yeah, and it's only available at Wawa uh, <laughs> yeah, supermarkets, exactly. if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they are, but they are going to be coming to the U.S. and they, they are unlocked enough that you can bring them into the U.S. Um, uh, and and that was kind of like the the origination of this kind of dual camera system where phones. We were talking about in a previous episode how how optics has always been limiting, and for phones like you're not going to put a zoom lens into a phone because right now, based on our optics, you're going to have something that extrudes from the camera. It's going to be too big. It's, it doesn't make sense. So just put in a dedicated lens, which is the right size, and and you could do a lot more with it. Um, Google Pixels is doing single camera, a lot of stuff in software. The the two big things that we're seeing out of them that I think are really fascinating. Number one, 
they're working very closely with one of the um, camera and sensor um, rating teams or testers, which is DxO Mark. Mm-hmm. And so now cameras are going to come out, and or camera phones are coming out. What do we just call them? Phones? Why are they called camera phones? I don't know. Um, phones are coming out, and they're now touting that they have a DxO rating, which is a big deal because DxO is officially one of the big labs for testing sensors and lenses. They also happen to be a um, a consulting company, so gets into some interesting ethical questions. But uh, uh, re- regardless of that, um, they they are one of the bigger sites for for testing. And the fact that the cameras are, or the phones are now touting that hey, we have a DxO mark of ninety six or ninety eight is a big deal. Number two is when we talk about photography. Photography really just means capturing an image or a moment or or or, or composing an image and to capture it. But it's it's really a medium. And so there's no real difference between a point-and-shoot camera and, and a cell phone. They're both a camera that you carry around to capture smaller moments. Except that a point-and-shoot does not make phone calls. Exactly. Disadvantage. Yeah. Unless you yeah. had one of the older Samsung ones, in which case. <laughs> That's true. But, but the, idea, the idea over here, though, is that 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 a very much, I think Yakov and I are on the same page on this, is that- like, Of course, yes. No, no, no matter what you want to hate on, on, on the phones or, or whether or not they're good enough to do what you need them to do, they are your introduction to photography at this point in time. Kids sure. are learning how to take photographs on a cell phone. They're not learning how to take photographs on a point-and-shoot camera. Right. And and don't forget, you can also download all all these different apps to your phone that give it all the functionality of a real camera. So you can start to learn about ISO. You can start to explore things like f-stop. And and don't forget that also the cameras are also putting into their phones portrait mode. You know, mm-hmm. trying to mimic that depth of field type of fall off and, and things like that. So I think it's a really fascinating idea. And when we start to look at it in that frame of light, we see that not only is the the photo market way wider because it's now in everyone's pocket. But as soon as people start to learn what the limitations of their cell phone are, there's real reasons to start moving up. Right. I, I always find it funny when my, I sh- if I take pictures with my Minolta, my kids, and they want to see the back. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Here's yeah, the yeah. back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is the, something I wanted to mention, which is the counter trend of the popularity of film. I mean, people, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, you don't, you know, you don't walk around any neighborhood in Brooklyn without seeing somebody with a with an AE one or, or oh yeah, it's amazing. Minolta. It's uh, cameras that used to be looking at four dollars for at a yard sale, and now people are now strutting around like they're showing off. Oh yeah, and you had mentioned something about the modular camera attachments for Moto and Hasselblad. Yeah. Okay. What's that? How are those? Have you used any of those? So I used I used the Hasselblad on a Moto Z. I took it with me to Zurich. It's um, not a Hasselblad. It's not a Hasselblad. It, it's, it's not even a Frank and Sony Hasselblad. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a name. It, it, it's a name. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how far Hasselblad. It's a had Lenovo to do with it. Motorola Hasselblad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, obviously, they just licensed the name and they gave some kind of an okay to the design. Yeah. That's really what it, it is. It's, it's definitely, I think, more of a design thing. The, the the big thing to realize there is what I just mentioned earlier is that you you have limitations as far as zoom. When it comes to when it comes to a cell phone, you also have limitations on sensor size. You also have limitations as soon as you add an extra lens onto an a, what's essentially a closed camera system. You're adding it's add-ons. Exactly. Right. So what the what the Moto Z or what the what these um, what these modular systems are trying to do is that they leave a set of pins on the back where you can just slap on like a speaker or a projector or in this case a camera, and now you have a full functioning point of view camera that's connected to your phone. So you have all the advantages of shooting on your phone, aka loading it straight to whatever your favorite app is and, and uploading it to social media. But at the same time, you have the advantages of shooting with a nicer system. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I just wanted to go back. In terms of the iPhone and the Google phone, 
I find in terms of imaging, what the Google phone is doing is a lot more compelling. Um, I've heard that from a few people. Yeah. yeah, much more software going on. It's it's a heck of a lot of AI going into that, mm-hmm. which is something that could go forward into any single lens camera. They're able to do it on the front facing camera and on the rear facing selfies. Oh yeah, uh, <laughs> but basically, it's able to blur out the background just by it. It creates a full depth map of the scene, and then knows where's what is where and where is what. Is able to blur out certain parts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Apple, Apple only allows you to do it if you're front-facing camera telephoto. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. All right, so we're going forward with phones. Obviously, nothing's... Yeah, you know, they, they ain't going away. I mean, I don't really see, other than improvements on the phones that we're buying, any trends that are changing. I mean, there, there have well, people well, been well, trying to I think on is the phones happen. over the past few years that never seem to work. But. We're talking about add-ons, but something that's been going on in the background for a few years now is that there are several companies working with uh, what are essentially liquid lenses. They're fluid. And the lenses themselves change shape, which helps them refocus and change focal lengths. There's a lot of stuff going on. You mentioned that there's no real zoom lenses for uh, phones because of the fact that would make them ridiculously fat and clunky and lumpy. However, um, with if they can perfect, when they perfect this liquid fluid lens, that could change a lot of that. It could be very be possible to have a 600 millimeter lens in your phone. Yeah, there, 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 there are a lot of interesting technologies. So I think that we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of also, particularly when we're talking about phones, phones is a much bigger market than SLRs. Oh, yeah. Tremendously bigger. So we're seeing a lot of trickle up technology. So we see, we're seeing stuff that's coming into phones first and then making its way into, into larger camera systems like BSI technology Yeah, um, and things like that. The other thing that they're, they're working on for phones is that um, they're trying to do things as far as lenses, like you're talking about liquid lenses. There are other people doing like some interesting stacked lenses or mm-hmm. lenses that will go along the side of your phone rather than just front to back. Yeah. And then, of course, there's all the software stuff that's going on that just takes the data and yeah. ramps it from there. And you, you essentially have a mini laptop in your hand. You mentioned yeah. the BSI sensors. That's number two on our list for trends. Yep. You want to go from there? So it's backside illuminated, essentially moving all the wiring to the, to the back, and it allows you for faster offloads. It used to be the image actually passed through all of the circuits and stuff. Right. Now it circuits it behind it. There's nothing blocking it. Yeah. yeah. But that's not so new other than No, it's been on for a while, but now it's, it's new. It's new for DSLRs. It's, right. yeah. It keeps moving up the right. chain. Up yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Most of the benefit has been in terms of uh, light gathering capabilities. Mm-hmm. All the wiring is in the back. Right. Once you get to larger sensors, it, the minimal wiring is not as important, which is why the D850 just did it for speed. Yeah. Which I found interesting. I don't remember any BSI touting it for speed. Speed. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Mm. All right. So that's then, a trend then, that we'll see continuing. Yeah, and stacking on the BSI is the stack sensor. Yeah. 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 Where they the DRAM is the RAM is built straight into the back of the sensor. Um, the RX ten series. Every RX one hundred. Yeah. RX one hundred and a seven R three. One thing that I I did want to say in terms of that speed. Thing that's gone up also is the buffer. Yeah, we've mm-hmm. had ten frames per second for a while, but it was like ten frames dead. Yeah, and now you see. Oh yeah, it, it shoots ten frames and then go make a sandwich. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And now it's more usable that twenty, thirty, seventy, a hundred frames that you could shoot before your buffer fills. That's that's huge. Yeah, so that so that's meaning that there's more RAM built into cameras. But on top of that, and and I think there's a direct correlation is the speed of the cards that's coming out now. Mm-hmm. So. I, I think for all points and purposes, Compact Flash is going to go the way of the Dodo. And we're seeing the two large camera manufacturers, Sony, uh, sorry, not Sony, um, Canon and Icon, 
kind of trying to tout separate technologies, either XQD or CFast. Um, and we're seeing Canon put CFast into their uh, 1DX Mark, Mark II. Sony's been doing XQD, D500, D850, and D5. D5. Yeah. And both of them are, are interesting technologies in and of their own right but both of them are allowing for tremendously fast transfer and write speeds. Right, so no, another trend we're seeing is basically the card capabilities. And I think for mirrorless, you basically have the UHS-2, yeah. which is faster than any compact flash. So you have XQD, uh, UHS-2 on the SD cards, and then you have the CFast. One thing I want to mention about um, UHS-2, because this has come up a lot, particularly in sales, it's the same exact size as a standard SD card. So if you're a buyer and you're looking to purchase a UHS-2 and you just heard us say that it's a much faster card, and you're saying, oh yeah, I want to get the faster card, don't stick it into a UHS-1 slot because it's actually probably going to be slower than your UHS-1 card. And mm-hmm. you're going to be spending more money for a card that you're not going to get the benefits from because there's actual physical differences. There's a second layer of pins, which allows for faster bus speeds and allows for extra transfer of data. Right. One thing about XQD, there's something called CF Express, which is supposed to be the next iteration of that. It hasn't hit yet, but it's supposed to be backwards compatible. Um, and that's going to build on the XQD format going forward. It's going to be backwards compatible to a CF card? XQD. So there's going to be CF Express in XQD. Yeah, something like that. Interesting. But that's that's, that's not complicated. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> well, take away those bye-bye compact flash. Yeah, another thing you're seeing... It sounds like floppy disk is just dead now. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> no, they're coming back. You, you have records and floppy disks, yeah. True, records All the back. stores yeah. are full of them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Mirrorless autofocus has arrived with the A9. That's your next Yeah, point. so we, we mentioned this in the previous episode, but mirrorless autofocus is actually real a, a really solid thing. No blackout, 20 frames per second, and super fast. Um, 699 points of focus across the sensor. That sounds right, yeah. Um, a lot. A, a lot. lot of points across it. I can tell you that I was shooting... Yaakov, can you go count them while we're here? Just, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me a second. One of... One. <laughs> <laughs> one, of one, one of the really big things, and I think it's um, an under-touted... Uh, Where was I up to? Advantage to... <laughs> under-touted and I think under-marketed because I, I think in the beginning it didn't do so well. But now with the A9 and the A7, A7R3, the eye autofocus that Sony has where it's able to recognize an eye and focus on that, I use that on the A9. And the, 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 speed, the speed of the of the eye autofocus and the ability to actually catch on, even in a group of people, to an eye or within a range, was tremendous and accurate. Yeah. They, they said with the A7R3, it's finally like really there. Everything has gotten faster. That's the number trend here, which is something we're talking yeah. about here. So we, we don't I even go any further than that. Uh, whether it's frame and speaking rate, of things going faster, autofocus. we also have slow-mo. We have slow-mo. Slow-mo. Yeah, but, that, but, yeah. that, but that is everything going faster, meaning that it's able to capture way more information. Exactly. Yeah. And, and write it. Yeah. So everything is getting faster. So everything um, speeds, of whether it's autofocus, whether it's frames per second, like we, we were talking about in the last episode, the D850 is shooting nine frames per second with the battery grip at 45 megapixels. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's huge. That's yes. a huge amount of information coming down the pipeline. The, the comparison there is that your 1DX or your D5, which are shooting 16 frames per second, they're shooting 16 megapixels. Uh, 2018, yeah. yeah. Still, still, yeah. world of a dis- difference. Yeah. I guess one thing that sort of maybe segues in terms of speed, uh, the Panasonic G9, if anyone's familiar with Wi-Fi protocols, it now has Wi-Fi AC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Faster so, Wi-Fi. 
a lot that is basically the fastest that's out there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the question is when when does that replace all cables or does it not or where are cameras going with wireless? Oh, question. so that's so that's actually something that's on the list there. Mm-hmm. So something that we're seeing with wireless is to, until now, if you want to do anything like wireless tethering or wireless camera control, you had to buy some kind of accessory dongle. It originally started with the really big um, systems, like a thousand dollars for for Canon, eight hundred bucks for Nikon, and and it was a very complicated system. Uh, Wi-Fi, as we know, is, is it, I think was very much approached as like a consumer end um, product or high end product. Um, at this point in time, people want a lot of camera control. So if you didn't buy the high end stuff, you'd buy something like a um, Cam Ranger or a Tether Tools um, Case Air, Case Relay, um, and and anything along along those lines, and it would be like a separate piece for either one hundred fifty bucks or three hundred bucks, and you get in and you do full Wi Fi control. The cameras are now coming out with with really solid Wi Fi apps, so you can do full control from your phone. They're not fully there yet, but I do think over the next couple of years we're going to start to see a really full fledged camera control. Right. And do you think that the the high end shooters, the professionals, are going to embrace it? Uh, depends if they need full tethering of RAW. Um, we, well, we we did see with the five D Mark IV, um, one of the commercials was showing a, a high end photographer stick a camera on a ceiling and shoot full control from phone. Right. Uh, and the new Sony, they've they're coming out with their own tethering software. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, and then the question is, how far do they go with wireless? that they're willing to implement, can that really get to the speeds of wired? Right. iOS, iOS on, I think with the 7 and 7 plus iterated raw support, um, and now on the 8, it for sure has raw support. So yeah, yeah. The, the, the bigger question is whether or not you actually want to transfer raw files to a mobile device, which to me sounds insane because you're usually limited on the amount of space you have. Well, even to your laptop. But to, right now, the Wi-Fi doesn't connect to computers. It's a mobile protocol. Right, that's what I'm saying. If the Wi-Fi really boosts its speed, yep. um, you have close-range Wi-Fi that, that is super fast. Yep. Um, is that something that's going to replace? The other thing, wireless, that I'd like to see, or maybe could happen, there's a lot of wireless flash systems mm-hmm. working via radio. Um, is that something they could implement into the camera? Meaning, can they implement that radio the radio controller. Right. Radio controller into the camera. I mean, Nikon has that little piece you stick on. WR10 yeah. or whatever it's called. It's yeah. a piece with another piece. Well, Pocket Wizards also worked with companies embedding transmitters into like meters, for instance. Yep. Right. For the longest time, you could buy a Siconic and it had a little thing. Still, in it. still can. And still, the, yeah. the, the Pro 10 and the Pro 8s had, had the Pocket Wizard control. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I guess, when will they build it in? And then I think if they build it in, they could really monopolize their the speedlight market. Because yeah. you have the camera with the radio transmitter, buy the Canon flash, buy so, the Nikon flash, buy the Sony flash. And the other thing I was thinking, they'd really have to create a new sort of interface where you could see what you're shooting and see your flashes and control yeah. them yeah. in a more seamless manner. But I think it's possible. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. yeah. Silent operation, bye-bye mechanical shutters. Let's combine those two. Yeah, so, si- so silent operation is, um, again, like with the A9 or the A7R3, uh, essentially D850. A su- more so with the other ones, I think, over the D850, because D850 still has some mechanical shutter going on. No, they could do full silent. They, they do full silent now? Yeah. That I haven't been able mm-hmm. to play with. Anyhow, regardless, we, we saw it first in, in mirrorless because they removed the the the, the mirror. Actually, and- saw it first in the Konica Hexar yeah, about of. 30 years ago, believe it or not. 
well, they I, had a silent mode. They really wow. did. Was I, that, was I that didn't see it. Was that, was that an SLR-style <laughs> camera? That uh, was a rangefinder. No, it was a rangefinder. Right. So, so on, 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 on an SLR on an SLR-style camera, one of the big noises you made was the mirror locking up. Yeah, and sure. And coming up. Um, the mirrorless cameras, because they didn't have that, they were able to just turn on and off the sensor at a certain speed, and that was your shutter speed. Um, well, it was still mechanical shutter. And mechanical shutter, but you could also turn on and off the sensor and get full silent shutter. Um, so what... What happened, Sony and Olympus and Fuji have been doing this for years now, is that you could shoot with the camera that made zero noise whatsoever. Like, I could go and photograph an event, um, or even theoretically the Philharmonic Orchestra. Well, or a, or a, a movie set, or, a movie or set. any theater situation exactly. where pre, pre, previous to this, you need a blimp or anything like You just want to be quiet, and it's huge, and it's yep. super practical. Uh, street photography, as, as you were just saying, it's, it's brilliant, and yeah. no one knows that you're shooting. We were living there at this concert where you were using it in silent mode, Yep, it was beautiful. Yep, um, actually, I should take one this weekend. Yeah. Oh uh, yes, yes, it's good. I reminded you. Yeah, yeah. you're back there. <laughs> Much appreciated. Um, so, what's the drawbacks to the uh, electronic shutter? Where is it? There? That was my next question. Yeah. You're a mind reader. Yeah. That's so why, why would I do you for avoid a it? I know that you lose a certain amount. You sometimes your sync speeds go down for flash. Yeah. What yeah. else is there? There's a there is a price to be. Paid. So let's let's actually talk about that. So sync speed goes down for flash, as far as that the the shutter can't be fully exposed. Right. Um, properly, so you usually have much slower sync speeds. Right, it's not a mechanical roll; it's an electronic roll, um, and it's it's slower than a sync speed, way slower. I mean, the D850, or I think maybe a fifteenth of a second. It is that slow. Okay, so some of them are slow. That could be maybe the okay. A9 is a sixtieth. Um, it's not ready to be to replace the mechanical shutter yet, okay, because of its slow roll. So you have to turn on and off a, sh- uh, yeah, a it's, sensor. it's it's turning on and off lines as it rolls down. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it's just not as fast as the mechanical one. Yeah. What else? So that's a drawback. So you get the the rolling shutter effect. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they've been limited in bit depth, especially on the Sony's. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a little more noise. There's a it cut off in dynamic range. Yeah. So bit bit depth meaning that you're gonna you're gonna lose some color. Right. So there's dynamic. no free lunch. There's no free now, lunch. what about if you're shooting raw with silent? Do you still lose so all the same, that data? It's the, same, it's the same issue, yeah. but you'd still have all the control that you have over raw, so you can still tweak the raw. You're just not going to have the same range that you okay, have. Okay, so yeah. you're still getting clipped there as well. Yeah. Right. Okay, interesting. But, so, new... but, but we're talking about clipped. Like, what are you shooting and how much clipping right. matters? Good right. point. You know, and, that's, and that's really what the conversation is. Is the shooting silent? Like, if John is going to go do some street photography and he wants to shoot stuff without people noticing him, is that worth the the cutoff because he could do a waist level shot with his, you know a Sony flip up finder, no one's going to hear him shooting. He just click 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 click. Right. No sound whatsoever. Great. Get all these amazing shots. Okay. Great. His whites may clip at a certain point, or his blacks may clip. But if he's it's exposing not, properly. He it's should not be, the point there. Yeah, right. Should be fine. Right. Unless things are moving fast, then it's not really an issue. The other benefit of it is there's no camera shake. Yeah. It's it's silent and the camera's not moving, so you can shoot a landscape without without having the camera vibrate. Um, in terms of it totally replacing the mechanical shutter, which I think is going to happen down the road. Ultimately, sure. Yeah. So I think uh, either two things. Uh, there's something called a global shutter, which has not really been viable in the photo camera yet. It's just very expensive. It turns on and it's off. Not, it's not even once. on a lot of the high-end video cameras. Right. It exists. Mm-hmm. It, It'll be in the iPhone 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, so that, that's the word I got. <laughs> so that may trickle down and make it into your photo cameras. The other thing is, if the roll of the electronic shutter gets close to where your sync speed is, let's say it takes one two fiftieth, it doesn't have to be global. Mm-hmm. As long as it's close enough, then that's it. Cool. Get rid of another piece. 
Throw it out of the camera. You know, keep another thing in mind, too, is that there are other technologies, even if the shutter speed is not fast enough where there might be a certain amount of blur, we're dealing with cameras right now that will shoot HDR, and they'll, do, they'll selectively pick pieces of different images that are sharper and better composed and, exp and exposed and put them together into one final image instantaneously. So it might be that you're still not quite there for sync speed. Say you're shooting outdoors and you have, might have some blur or the sky might blow out. The, the software will bring the sky back in or clip out some of the blur and just sharpen it. So right. there's a lot of stuff internally with this AI. One other thing I want to throw yeah. out there just really yeah. quick as far as sync speed goes, and this might be a little advanced or not advanced, I don't know, you know, depending on the level of listener, um, is Thank that you. even even if you have a one fifteenth of a of a sync speed uh, on your shutter, if you're if you're doing full studio work and you have a completely pitch dark environment, you can use flash to freeze motion. Mm -hmm. So there there's always that option as well. Right. So you drop your Good shutter point. speed. Good point. Yeah. yeah. Mirrorless medium format. So we we touched about this a little bit, but you have mm -hmm. the GFX fifty S and the X one D. Um, they're they're both competing for parts of the market. You know, they're I I do think that they're a bit niche. As far as that, what are the real advantages you get to by going to uh, medium format? I know that back in the day, everyone talked about resolution, resolution, resolution. Nowadays, resolution isn't necessarily such a clear um, cut line. Mm -hmm. What I think you do have more of is, number one, the look of medium format, which is an esoteric idea, which is that medium format is going to look differently. You can have wide angle lenses that don't have the same kind of bending and your depth of field is tremendously more shallow. Yeah. Um, the Very other different thing, effect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The other thing that you can get, um, and you find this on the Hasselblad because the Fuji doesn't do it yet, but you get full 16-bit RAW, um, which is going to allow you to get much greater um, subtleties and color um, gradations. gradations. Well, those two yeah. cameras Shadow have been out now for almost a year, right? Right. Or mm -hmm. getting out of that. Yeah. Do now, you see people, DSLR shooters jumping to that, or do you see the fact that the, the DSR from Canon and now the D850 with their high megapixel counts are going to just pull those people away from them? So the D810 or the D800 when it came out already pulled down a lot of shooters um, because you had a 36 megapixel camera that had tremendous dynamic range. So for studio work, it was great um, and way more affordable. But um, you still have the aesthetic of medium format because the pictures look different. Yes. Just like the same thing, a point and shoot will never, there's always going to be a different look about a point and shoot or even a micro four thirds or APS-C compared to yes. a full frame sensor. Right. It's just differences. Yeah. Right. There, so that's, that's harder to sell though. But unless you've used it. Yeah. yeah. It's a kind of thing. These are the subtleties we have see to be 50 experienced to see it. Right. Exactly. I see 50 megapixels. I see 50, I see 50, 45, 50. What's the difference? It doesn't matter. Sharp is sharp. But there's a, it's other than sharpness. Right. It's the way the image is rendered. That's where there's a real big So difference. what I, what I think we're seeing more of is, very either high-end enthusiasts or real pros who want to differentiate themselves. Mm. I'm no. coming to shoot your wedding for eight thousand dollars. Why is it eight thousand dollars? Because I am bringing a media. I'm bringing you a six thousand dollar camera. Right? It's not the camera that you have in your pocket or that your brother-in-law owns. Right? I'm bringing a camera that no one else has. Similar to what you know, wedding photographers did back in the day. Also, you know, they sure. brought a big, huge system, and you know, it's part of the horse and pony show. Yeah, 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 no, they want to know that. Okay, this guy's a, a professional. Right. It's an experiential thing. Now, here's, here's, here's something that just came up. We're talking about uh, medium format cameras, okay? And of course, we have the Rodney Dangerfield of the camera world. Pentax was not mentioned. <laughs> yes. Well, that camera's it's not mirrorless. That's three it's years old. It's an SLR. Old, yeah, yeah however, a, we're talking about development of. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but it's a Medium DSLR. Format. It, 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 it's still, it's not, it's not, not mirrorless. mirrorless. It's, it's not mirrorless, but it is hitting a similar market in a way. The question yeah. about these these mirrorless, are they going to eat into the market for someone who's going to buy a $10,000, $20,000 digital back? 
or is it going to eat into the DSLR market where people want to upgrade and, and, and show off what they or have? I think it could also be eating into the Leica market because you're in that same price range and prestige range. Somebody only, instead only of buying the cameras a, recognized as that level. Yeah, of I think I think the Hasselblad. I think somebody's going to buy an M10. We'll also be looking at that Hasselblad. Right, Hasselblad's right. trying to do that. Hasselblad has so. sure. the Fuji does not. Yeah. No. While we're on mirrorless, uh, are Canon and Nikon ever going to come out with real mirrorless options? Uh, they came out with an M5, you know, which is so far a, a Nikon huge step is going to be coming out with a mirrorless, from what I understand. Well, speaking of speaking of mirrorless, and Sony Pentax is coming out with a full frame digital SLR. <laughs> <laughs> Timing is correct. <laughs> but one one thing I wanted to just say about medium format: Are we going to see a larger medium format sensor? Mm, that's a good question, right? Yeah. Which is a great, which, which has been the question for a long time because yeah. we don't still we still don't have true medium format one to one yet from what you're used to from the film days. And that could be more of a differentiator. There's sort of and is it also in other words? What used to be medium format was six by six square, or six seven, or six nine. Do we need to match those? Because the truth of the matter is. When you're comparing medium format digital, medium format film, it's two different ball game. Medium, the best 35 millimeter full frame cameras exceed, greatly exceed medium format film cameras. They're approaching six, nine and four by five format as far as image quality and sharpness. Okay, I don't think you have to match that per se. Right, it, 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 it's more of a, a, of a holdback. You it's know, like, a look. Also, if, if, you're, yeah. if you're trying to get that look, maximize the look. True, okay. Yeah. right. Um, what were we talking about, Nikon? So we were talking about whether or not Nikon and Canon are going to put out serious. Can I just say something about mirrorless? Nikon? I, the D850 is beautiful, but has anyone seen the Nikon one? No. Or the DL? Or the DL, or even the Nikon A. Well, that the DL is not going to be happening, and the Nikon ones are now, from money stand, they're on uh, milk containers. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, but and then you had the A, that APS-C nice point and shoot, also gone. Like, and they've closed fact factory closed yeah, it's a combination of, of people suffering. getting overwhelmed by so many cameras are out there in the point and shoots even though they've greatly retrenched there's too many of them out there and everyone's got amazing phones right now it's a very unless you have like like a, a tough a rugged point and shoot which i could be i could justify to a lot of markets or an advanced point and shoot one of the more advanced it's hard to justify a small point and shoot these days a two three hundred dollar camera yep. and, and nikon doesn't have compelling point and shoots didn't have anything advanced. The only one I like, P900. Yeah. What what to me has been interesting is that Sony a couple of years ago said how they don't really see mirrorless A, like the, the Sony mount mirrorless really kind of going anywhere. And this was kind of like a, a, a thing from Sigma's, one of their VPs or something. And now they're releasing rededicated E-mount, really nice class. Yeah. yeah. And there were a lot of lenses. Oh, by the way, we're going to be, let's talk also about third-party optics. One of the interesting things, there were some companies right now that are making lenses only for yeah. Sony E-mount. Mm -hmm. And I've never seen that happen before. Like the, like the Tamron Farron. Yeah, exactly. And there, yeah. I believe that's not the only that one Tukina, now. Tokina Farron. Tokina Farron, the 20F2. Yeah, yeah. They, it's only E-mount. They've had Zeiss for a while. Um yeah. Making some email lenses, but I think that's more. There's some. There's a relationship there. The oh yeah, you know there was yeah. that. That was definitely part of it. But now they're coming out with lenses specifically. No, this is the camera it's being made for. And right. what we're also finding is, so you have you have all the standard kind of like third party optics maker, Tokina, Tamron, um, Sigma, Sigma. You have Rokinon and Samyang, kind of Bauer's kind of like the same thing. But they're they're kind of coming into their own, releasing autofocus lenses. But you have a lot of third parties like Venus Optics, mm -hmm. Mawa, and and these companies which are instead of addressing like the standard lenses, 
they're addressing interesting lenses. So you get like a 15 millimeter macro lens or a super zoom macro, which is like looks like a yeah, like an antenna almost. You know, yeah, yeah. the 15 millimeter macro was really interesting to use. You got to get really close. You're practically inside of what you're shooting. Yeah, you're practically inside, and then focusing. You don't think it's tough with a Mac with a wide angle, but when you're like a millimeter away. Oh, I love a 15 <laughs> with an extension tube. That's an adventure. Yeah, no, no, seriously. <laughs> so let me jump in here, guys, with uh, two things that are on the opposite end of the spectrum. One we already addressed, uh, and then we'll hit VR and jump out of here. But film, instant film, and just the return to enthusiast shooting film. Uh, is this a trend that we're going to see over the next year and change? seems like instant has somehow so instant, run its instant, course. I don't think instant's run its course. I think yeah, I instant think is, is nowhere near running its course. Oh, yeah? Um, yeah? You have a tangible instant instant gratification. Mm-hmm. I just so. bought more instant film. You did? Yeah, I took pictures with it. Okay. Yeah. And now he bought more. And, um, yeah. And then you'll buy more. Then I'll buy more and I'll buy more. That's yeah, the way it is. Um, yeah. Impossible Project has rebranded itself. Now it's, it's Polaroid. It's, it's Polaroid. Polaroid. Yeah. Yep. And that just makes it even bigger. Mm. Yep. Um, new cameras, newer films, all that type of stuff. If you if you went to the show, they had a Polaroid booth with all the, even like the old Polaroid cameras, yeah, the ones so. with the little flip up. And yeah, yeah, yeah. But they've, I, been, they've been refurbishing those for a while. Yeah. We sell them. Yeah. Really that is possible. so interesting. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know. The show. I've never seen any other thing like that mm. where we're selling refurbished new cameras. cameras. From, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, yeah. The, mo- the most interesting thing about it is, and just, just to clarify what I was saying before, is that you have the instant gratification. So you take a picture and you get to see it right away, similar mm-hmm. to like what you have on your phone. Right. The difference is, though, is that with this, you actually have the picture, whereas on right. a phone, if I send it to you, I look at it once, I never look at it again. This I can now magnet up somewhere or, or put up somewhere or make it part of a scrapbook. Right. Right. The other thing you're seeing... But anywhere. you can't share it on Facebook. Well, you can take a picture of you, you holding can, it, <laughs> yeah. and then you can share it on Even Facebook. Even better, yes. <laughs> the other thing you're seeing with the instance is you're seeing these small instant printers. Yes, mm-hmm. either yeah. the which, zinc, which were a while for right. which were around for a while, right? right. But they're they're bigger. The zinc mm-hmm. printers, the ones that print straight onto that instant film, Polaroid mm-hmm. film, I think those are growing also. What about new thirty five millimeter film stocks? New companies are coming out for the hipsters that want to use them. Yeah, uh, it's not just hipsters. It's it's there's That's so true. so with yeah. What am I? Uh, hipster. Oh yeah, of course. They're they're. <laughs> <laughs> Quintessential you're a, hipster. You're a hipster. <laughs> a hipster. A hipster. A hipster. Hasid or hipster. Okay. Um, what, what's interesting that we find is that with with everyone being able to do everything on digital, so I can pretty much mimic exactly your look or mimic somebody else's look, um, we have a lot of people going back to kind of that technical relearn a skill kind of idea and have a skill that you solidly know. Um, it's the draw of analog. Exactly. That's what it is. It's, it's, the, draw, it's the draw of doing something hands-on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's hitting, it's hitting a lot of fields. Yeah. No, it the is. The draw of analog. Yeah. Um, well, I'm, music, I mean, the LPs yeah. are coming back. People are buying vinyl. Right. It's, it's hitting And the everything. profit margin is phenomenal. VR. Seriously. I, I, I believe VR. you. Yeah. VR. Yeah. VR. With a question mark after it. VR, VR. is <clears throat> not analog. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> so about, we, we have 360. 360 is, is going to be here for a while. Um, it's an experiential thing. VR is kind of the more interesting thing, and I think we've mentioned this before on a podcast, but VR, we're still waiting to see who figures out how to do VR for groups. Mm-hmm. Right. I think I think you're going to see a little more of the merge reality. Yeah. Um, where you you have an overlay on what you see. So I could look at Alan, and I could see bunny ears on him, which is, like, invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> augmented, <laughs> augmented reality. I understand. Augmented, merged, they're interchangeable. You do understand. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, anything we about video you want to talk about? In terms of trends, yeah, we feel that the camera industry is going back to the way it was 20, 30 years ago. I think I've been saying this for a while, but 
the only people who are buying cameras are the people who want yeah. cameras. Um, Otherwise, point and shoot is your phone. Right. So the yeah. market is hitting, going back to mean. Mm. It's interesting. Just, just missing a category. So what used to be point and shoot cameras is now your phone. And now anyone who really wants to shoot, it was like if your Uncle Bob owned, you know, like a, a nice camera, he did it because he was actually serious about it. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Um, how's, that, how's that look for our jobs? <laughs> I don't think it's going to be great. a problem. It's just changing. Great. I mean, phones yeah. are going to be around here. However, right. it's going to mean that the cameras that are left behind are really truly photographic instruments rather than just little accessory right. things. And just, yep. it's, it's, they're going to be more serious. They, I think they're going to be more on uh, you know, They're going to be focused. More yeah. focus on the art. Yes. On the art, precision, craft. all that type of stuff. The yeah. craft. Yeah. Okay. Uh, did we want to hit video or no? Uh, I have, I have yes. a, a soundbite for video. What, I, what, <laughs> what, what I'm seeing for video is that video has truly come into its own in digital video. And now we have very clear differentiations between what's really a photo camera that they also stuck some video stuff into mm-hmm. versus just dedicated video cameras. And even though the Sony A7Rs are, or the A7 series doing great with video and the GHs are doing great with video, you do see that Canon's not really trying to tout the 5D Mark IV as a video camera anymore. That's a good point. Um, even though Nikon's trying to add video to their system, you still have very real reasons to move to C100 Mark II or an FS5, an FS7, because they now have cheaper cameras, or the, the video industry has cheaper cameras, more affordable cameras that do the real features and needs that video people need. Right. So video, first of all, 4K is done. Yeah. That's old news. Yeah. We're already past that. Um, definitely the photo cameras were, all of them coming out, pushed the video industry to drop and make cameras available to people. The other thing you're going to see more of is HDR and video. Yeah. Um, the new Sony Screens. A7R three has an 8-log, 8-log that is built for HDR going straight into your screen. The television screen's all HDR. That is the next thing that, the whole industry is pushing across the board and you're going to see it more in the cameras we sell. Mm-hmm. Thank you, gentlemen. Take us out. Okay. Jakob Adler, Lady Tannenbaum, thank you so much for joining us and today. And listeners, get thank back you. to us Pleasure. with your thoughts on this. We really yes, want to hear, let's hear what you from think you. the trends are going to be, where we missed, and, and what we hit on it. Tell us what we missed. We'd love to see what we missed. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Okay, we're back. Adrian O'Hanison is a photojournalist based in Kenya, covering breaking news and long-form stories in East Africa. On our monthly segment, Dispatch, she keeps us informed on the working life of a freelance photographer. On past episodes, she has chronicled her assignments covering the ongoing conflicts in Somalia and South Sudan, illegal mining in Congo, day-to-day life in Nairobi, and the constant struggles and joys of navigating media outlets, NGOs, armies, and broken cameras in the pursuit of stories untold. On today's segment, she reports from a wildlife conservancy that manages white rhinos and trains dogs for tracking and assaulting poachers. She also discusses a short assignment in a refugee camp in northern Kenya. Here's Adrian. Getting back to work after the Congo attack was the best thing to do, the best way to move forward, because I quickly realized that Jumping in and out of countries and especially being at home in Nairobi and planning for my next trip, that is my normal. And I did take some time off after the attack. Um, Of course, went and visited my family and recovered from malaria that I ended up catching. 
But at the end of the day, I really felt put back together once I was in my home in Nairobi and getting back to work. I think I felt a bit lost without without that process, without um, keeping myself busy, without having a purpose. So I've been really lucky the last few weeks to have had some great assignments. And it just goes to show, and it's something I always have to remind myself of in this industry, is you have some of the greatest moments and some of the worst moments. And that's all, all part of the work. I'm continuing to follow the Congo story. Um, I even felt um, drawn to go back to see how the situation will develop. I am tempted to, to follow that story. I think I'll let it rest for a bit. And when um, I feel confident about going back and when the people on the ground feel confident, then, um, then maybe I'll take that step. In the meantime, over the last few weeks, I've had the chance to work on a couple of really great stories that I've um, that I'm really excited about. One was about it's about a four hour drive north of Nairobi, directly north of Nairobi, and it's in a conservancy called Olpajeta. And I haven't actually done that many wildlife stories, and so this was really exciting for me to actually. It was great. I, I got to go on safari for a handful of days, um, basically lived in this conservancy. And um, it was quite cool. There's um, little cottages that are used for researchers. Um, so you can stay right in the middle of this amazing landscape. It's right at the base of Mount Kenya, which is the second highest peak on the continent, uh, just behind Mount Kilimanjaro. So you'd wake up in the morning and you could see the best time to see Mount Kenya um, was in the early morning when it was clear. And so I had gone there with a writer. Um, we were doing a piece for BuzzFeed, which isn't out yet. But the story will be on Sudan, who is a 44-year-old um, northern white rhino. And he's the last of his kind. So... Um, when he passes away, there will no longer be any more male northern white rhinos. There are still a couple of females, but um, they'll have to figure out an unnatural process, um, which actually scientifically, they don't have the technology yet. I learned a lot <laughs> about rhinos on this trip, and I can, I can talk forever now. Um, but so it was, it was incredible to me in any, any story that I jump into to watch people who are experts in what they do. And that varies so much from person to person, from profession to profession. And for this story, I really wanted to look at the keepers of Sudan. So who are the people taking care of him every day? And to see the relationship between these rangers who there was a few and their sole job was to take care of the white rhinos. So these two females in Sudan, the last male northern white rhino. And to see the relationship between these rangers and this rhino was, I'd, I've never seen anything like it because I'd never been in a situation before where humans were communicating directly with rhinos. I don't know if this exists anywhere else, but the rangers had a relationship with 
Sudan, they could speak with him. Uh, the rhino knew the voice of the rangers. Um, he felt comforted by the rangers. And they just knew his every movement. They knew his moods. They knew what he preferred. They knew what annoyed him. They knew where to scratch on his body to calm him down. And to watch that, to watch that relationship, um, especially when, I mean, I was absolutely terrified to be around this creature, mainly because I understood that the rangers had such a great relationship with Sudan, but I was unsure, um, and the rangers also were unsure, when you bring someone new into the presence of the rhino, how the rhino will react. Um, so that was really terrifying to me because it, the animal is massive and any movement <laughs> could just be the end. And um, to be standing there and, and watch the rangers interact um, so fearlessly with Sudan and so confidently was really just, it was beautiful. And so I got to spend time with these rangers and watch as they prepared Sudan's arthritis medication, um, stick it into bananas and feed him pellets and hay every morning and watch them as they chase the monkeys away because the monkeys would always come and try to steal Sudan's food. And Sudan has gone mostly blind on the left side and the monkeys know this. So when the food was placed on the ground, the monkeys would immediately jump, jump down and try to, um, try to steal the food from this old rhino. And you could see, you could see him getting annoyed and the rangers would have to come up and, and calm him down and chase the monkeys away. And it was really like watching, I felt like I was watching an old person, like a grandfather, even my grandfather, um, the way he moved, how he would get aggravated easily or frustrated easily. Originally, Sudan was captured in Sudan, um, which from an area that's now South Sudan, um, and was taken to a zoo in the Czech Republic. And so from what I understand, walking on hard surfaces on concrete for a long time really harmed his legs. Now he's more, I saw it as a, a retirement home in Kenya um, where he'll live out his days. And this conservancy um, is actually known for rehabilitating black rhinos, which are another um, endangered species. And it was great to be able to explore this idea of conservation because it just seems so simple when you first approach it. You know, we, yes, we're concerned about the environment. Yes, we're concerned about different species of animals. Yes, we're concerned about conservation. But what does that mean? And what does that look like? And it was great to be able to talk to some of the people there and learn what that balance is especially in a place like Kenya where land is very valuable for many reasons. It can be valuable for farming. It can be valuable for pastoralists. So a lot of time there's human wildlife conflict. And so how do you, how do you balance that? How do you please a growing population and how do you still conserve the wildlife? And so this conservancy has done something quite interesting because Originally, people thought of conservancy as, okay, well, let's, let's fence off this area and this is what we're going to conserve. Everything 
else stays outside and all the natural things stay inside and and end of story. But what we're finding now is that's not really feasible, um, that you can't just take away mass amounts of farmland or mass amounts of um, land for animals to graze on. So in this conservancy, it's a bit abnormal. I think it maybe will become something that's more normal, but you'll see cows grazing. And so you're really managing an entire system, um, which had never really occurred to me before. So you're trying to balance different animals. You're trying to balance the food chain all within a, a very small area. And I guess the obvious thing to discuss talking about rhinos is the reason for the lack of these populations or the lack of rhinos in Kenya is a direct result of poaching for the rhino horn. Um, and so another aspect of this that we got to explore was we got to spend time with some of the dogs that are now trained to track poachers. They're trained to, there's another group that are called assault dogs. And so there, <laughs> there was one that was actually just his sole purpose was to bite people's arms. Um, I think his name was Diego, Diego the assault dog. And there's another group that sniffs specifically for ammunition. And so you have all these different dogs with different um, different tasks. So we got to go out with um, one of these one of these hounds to watch how they're trained and they're trained daily. So we got to go out and see the hound um, pick up a scent. And one of the rangers went out and hid in a tree and the dog followed the scent and, and finally found the ranger in the tree and was given a sausage treat. Um, but it's just been an amazing way um, to be able to track down the rhino horn or to track down um, the poachers who are carrying the rhino horn. And the last activity in the conservancy was to go out with a group of rangers just on foot and try to track down a black rhino. And the black rhinos normally hang out in bushy areas. Um, they're quite hidden because this is what they eat. They're not out on the grassland like the white rhinos are. And I don't think I've ever been so scared. And that's really funny to say coming off of the Congo experience, but um, just walking through the bush with these rangers not knowing when you were going to stumble upon a rhino was absolutely terrifying. And also they're known to be quite aggressive. And um, the only advice that I was given was to um, to jump in a tree. And the trees are really small. It's um, It's quite dry. You have these small thorny acacia trees the branches don't even look like they'll hold anyone so it just seemed like a bit of a joke I'm sure one you know small nudge from a rhino and the entire tree would fall down but um again to watch these rangers work and to watch their relationship with the animals was incredible to see but then also terrifying because I was clearly in these animals territory for the first time so there was one situation where we were going from a wooded area out kind of into an open clearing and this herd of buffalo just came at us buffalo are also very aggressive and the rangers were just saying oh you know don't worry we know these buffalo they know us 
they're just coming to to check you out and, and see who you are. It didn't really look like that. They were really coming quickly towards us. Um, but the buffalo did. They knew the rangers. They had a relationship with these rangers who do these patrols regularly to keep an eye on, on the rhinos. Um, and so, yeah, they, they tracked this rhino down and she was a pregnant rhino, pregnant black rhino and, um, only using footprints. And it was great. You have to, (laughs) you have to approach a rhino from a certain side, depending on the way the wind blows, because I guess they have quite a good sense of smell. And so they're, it looked like something out of a movie. They were throwing dirt in the air or kicking dirt. And so the dust would come up and blow in a certain direction. So you could um, gauge which way the wind was blowing. And then um, you could approach the rhino from that side. So you didn't want the wind blowing your scent in the direction of the rhino. You had to say downwind from the rhino. But just walking through these bushes and trying to avoid making noise and once in a while one of the rangers would put their hand up and make you walk more slowly and or just stand still and we didn't know what was going on it could have been anything it it, um, it could have been an elephant it could have been buffalo um, because we were just on foot through this conservancy it was quite an incredible experience and to watch the rangers in this environment was just like nothing I'd ever seen before The other story that I've been working on, um, I just got back uh, about a week ago, um, was up in Dadaab, which is a refugee camp in northern Kenya. There are about, I don't know, around 230, 240,000 people living in the camp now, mainly uh, Somalis, people who have fled war or drought and famine in Somalia. And um, this used to be the largest refugee camp in the world until recently. The largest camp now is in northern Uganda. That's made up of South Sudanese refugees that have fled the war in South Sudan. So you have a massive population up on the very northern border of Kenya. We are trying to follow a family who is moving from Dadaab and returning to Somalia. And this has been something that's been in the news quite a lot in Kenya. There's a lot of tension between Somalis and Kenyans. Um, not, I shouldn't say mainly, but um, a big factor within that tension and within politics especially is the, the link between Somalia and Al-Shabaab, the terrorist organization um, that was responsible for the big Westgate attack the attack on the mall in Nairobi. Somalis are blamed for this terrorist activity, even though there's a massive um, Somali community in Nairobi. It's called Little Mogadishu. So it's been quite a political move on Kenya's part to push to get these refugees out of their country. So at this point, there have been about almost 74,000 people who have been um, returned from Dadaab into Somalia. And so we were there to explore this process of repatriation because both sides, the Kenyan government and especially UNHCR, the branch of the UN that um, deals specifically with refugees, 
have said, you know, this is a voluntary um, choice that people make. Um, if they want to go back to Somalia, that's a choice that they can make. It's an informed decision and we'll help them do that. And so we were there to explore this issue to see what the factors were that people were looking at, that families were looking at um, to make the choice to go back to Somalia. And it's interesting because you have some people, so they arrived in the early 90s, so you have many children who have been born in Kenya, have never been in Somalia. You have many families who no longer have any connection to the country. So how do they make this decision? And what factors are they looking at? And how is it really... Is it really a decision that's coming from within the family or is their decision being swayed? And so we wanted to go up and speak, um, speak with people about this and see what their factors were. And so we ended up spending, I guess it was about five days with one particular family and just following their whole process. So I got to photograph their home. Um, it was a single mother with two daughters and uh, one of her granddaughters. So a mother with three three young girls. Yeah, so got to photograph their home and watch them pack and then watch them come to the transit center, spend night with the transit center. I guess it was two nights at the transit center with everyone else that would be on their plane back to Mogadishu, which is where they chose to go to. Um, there are a few different options that UNHCR puts on the table and they had chosen to go to the capital. And so I got to spend time in their home, but also in this transit center and really got to meet everyone on the plane that was flying back into Mogadishu. There were 32 people on the plane. And so a lot of these families have tons of children. So it's very common to meet a mother with six, nine, 11 children. Um, so huge families going back to the capital. Some have more connections than others. Um, this woman um, no longer had any family there and she was just traveling alone with her three daughters. And so one of the factors, a large factor for most of the people who were choosing to go back to Somalia is that UNHCR is offering up $200 per person to go back to their country. And this is the part that I struggle with as to what is it, what is a choice and how do, how do people make an informed choice? How do you explain to a family who's been living in a refugee camp for years, um, what Somalia is like? And so this money that's being offered $200 per person, especially to families that have six children, it's an amount of money that these people have never seen before. And most of these people have never even seen U.S. dollars. So, yeah, how do you, how can you say for sure that this is a decision that's not swayed by this sum of money? And that's what we were, we were looking at. And so spending time with this family in Dab, and then we'll try to go and meet them in Mogadishu to kind of follow up and see where these returnees um, end up and what their lives will be like in Mogadishu. Um, the life in Dadaab 
is harsh and it's getting more difficult. And that's a result of, again, the Kenyan government and also UNHCR and WFP, the World Food Program, cutting rations. So cutting the amount of food that they give to people in the camp, which was another main factor of people saying, well, we can't make enough money here um, and we definitely don't have enough to eat. And so we might as well take this money and go back to Mogadishu. And many people were hopeful that once they were in they were in the capital that they could start a small business. But it's very difficult and it's also um, quite dangerous. I mean, we just saw last month a massive bombing in Mogadishu that killed over 350 people. And that was something that news obviously traveled down to the job and um, made people question a bit um, whether or not they should go back or if it was safe to go back. And so we'll see. We'll see how these families um, deal with their, their new place and we'll see how, how they can start a new life. But again, it was, it was really difficult to see how people made this choice because choice is such a privileged idea. Um, and when we think of choices, they're not necessarily made out of necessity. And I feel like for a lot of these families, every decision they've made throughout life has been out of pure necessity. And I hope that this story showing a bit of their life, showing where they're coming from, showing when they're, uh, where they're going through and then where they end up in Somalia will help to illustrate that, that decision. Okay, thank you so much, Adrian. And back here in the studio, thank you to Yako, thank you to Levy. Keep in mind that with our 100th episode, we do have a big giveaway coming up. In the meantime, go to iTunes, subscribe if you haven't. And as always, thank you, Jason, thank you, John. And to our listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. <laughs>